I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. What happens at each school committee meeting has huge implications for our students, our city, and our state. And this podcast shines a light on the decisions our leaders are making. At last night's meeting, topics included failing bus transportation, coronavirus testing, MCAS performance, the superintendent's goals, and an incomplete simulation of the new exam school policy. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I am good. We're in October, fully into a Beautiful year. fall. That's right. Jill, the meeting began with the superintendent's report, and she opened talking about numerous issues. Um, the first issue that the superintendent talked about was testing, coronavirus testing in schools, Jill. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that there's a lot of issues with testing in schools in, in the sense that it's not happening in many schools. Right. And, you know, the superintendent didn't really talk a whole lot about what to do about this. She sort of said, look, the, the state's having problems with implementation. Right. This organization called CIC Health right. is, is held up. But what the superintendent didn't address was how do we ensure that our students are being tested every day? And in fact, you know, from what we hear- Every week. I'm sorry, every week. Yeah. Um, and from what we hear, you know, some schools are testing all of their students on a weekly basis right. and staff. Right. And other schools haven't begun testing at all. Jill, this is about tubes mm-hmm. and nasal swabs. Right. Um, and last year, our schools in BPS were testing. Right. Uh, we were week. doing it already. Yes. We know how to do it. We know how to do it. So right. I, I'm just confused as to why BPS doesn't right. take this into their own hands. And why are we blaming the state? We know how to do it. Just get the tubes. And get the nasal swabs. And start testing. Label the tubes and send them in. That's right. So this was the first of what we heard from the superintendent last night, that this is not my fault. It must be somebody else's fault. Right. Well, one of the first questions of the evening was from Zyra Mercer, who asked why busing is so complicated. The superintendent initially talked about many different issues in the district, which in her mind are all connected to poor transportation execution. This piece, Ms. Mercer, is the fact that we bus all over Boston. Um, You know, our assignment system is very complicated. Um, We assign and strand and sort our students in Boston public schools and send them to different schools. That has to be really looked at. Um, It's inequitable that the way that we do that and it has to um, be examined. Um, whether that's giving every student a fair shot. That's one piece. Um, I think the other piece is around neighborhood schools. And, uh, you know, we bus about 27,000 students. And so that's a lot of students on buses. Um, And so looking at, um, you know, close to home and how students are assigned is really a, a key piece. Um, I think another piece is start times and tiers and, you know, how how those are decided and walk zones. The state, uh, it requires busing for any student over two miles. We do it at one and a half miles. So we have more students on the buses. We also bus charter schools and private school students. Um, and we bus out of the city and into the city. Superintendent goes on to propose a very simple fix to the problem. We have 105 standby drivers. So really, if they all show up, we shouldn't have this problem. So, so Jill, you heard it right. Um, uh, you know, if we just had all the bus drivers report, uh, there'd be plenty of bus drivers to be driving the routes every day. So the other thing 
there's a that's a lot of problems that are associated with the district. But at the end of the day, if all bus drivers show up, then the problem solved. Problem solved. The problem, the transportation problem, anyway. Correct. Yeah. Correct. However, the superintendent did did um, uh, come back to the committee and said she's going to form this this transportation task force. It's really large. Very large. Lots of members. Yeah. Um, and in fact, this task force, Jill, is going to solve a number of issues that have yet to be solved. Uh, so they are going to address start and end times, mm -hmm. um, which you rem remember a few years ago was quite the fiasco that was put forward yeah. and then pulled back. Uh, yeah. Um, actually because of lack of simulation data, yeah. school by school. Hmm. Um, they're gonna address the bus driver's contract, the, the collective bargaining agreement, the trans dev contract. I think they're also said, the superintendent said they're gonna address the student assignment policy writ large. It's amazing. Um, so uh, we can't wait for this committee to be put together because it sounds like they're gonna basically explore every single part of the district and make recommendations for how to improve. Jill, also the superintendent in her comments spoke about an update on the EMK, the yeah. Edward M. Kennedy High School. Uh, they're currently housed in an elementary school outside of which students were being, were protesting at the last school committee meeting because they're being forced to use a bathroom built for second graders in a building with windows that can't be opened in a pandemic because it's too noisy outside to learn. Here's what the superintendent said about Edward M. Kennedy. The school leaders said that, you know, she didn't think that that was going to be a appropriate. So we are still seeking it out. And she is, you know, you know, considering and thinking about maybe they, you know, stick it out where they're at now at the Endicott for the year so that we can turn our focus to next school year and make sure that we're not uh, in a similar place where we don't have swing space. Um, so we have to figure out a, the long term solution for them and really start to put our effort there. And um, but we continue to work with the EMK community as the meeting moved along then, the school committee went on to vote and accept updates on library services. There were no changes to the policy. It was unanimously approved. It seems like everyone gets a library. There's no amendments that were introduced. And it sounds like at least for the time being, we're using ESSER funding for these libraries. Right, Jill, I mean, you remember at the last meeting, there was a lot of conversation of like, hey, what is the reason STEM labs, why schools like, don't have libraries? Right. And there was trade-offs being right. made. And then some school committee members said, well, why don't we have mobile libraries? Or maybe there's other ways to yeah. do this. And then essentially just, they just come back with the same exact proposal and the school committee unanimously approves it with no questions asked. Well, and Michael O'Neill did say, Vice Chair O'Neill did say, you know, you have to be careful because those libraries come with headcount and the headcount we can't pay for with ESSER funding because we'll create this cliff that we don't want to fall off of. But she did say that that funding for headcount is coming from another budget. But we are adding heads if we're adding libraries. We are adding, yes. And then the superintendent also said, that, don't worry, we're going to do a bunch of athletic stuff too. And we're going to assume all the costs in the operating budget for any staff that's hired. Right. So um, this is interesting. You know, we know that our student population is diminishing. Um, you know, we've we've seen reports that the there's a potentially that we're down to 48,000 students in our district or just, right. uh, just shy of 49,000. That means funding is going to come down. Right. Uh, and when this ESSER money goes away, we are going to be in for a rude awakening. Something for the new mayor to really have to chew on. Absolutely. The first report, Jill, of the evening was about MCAS results from this past year. Let me go a little bit into the MCAS results and how they were reported. Essentially, we're down, right? I mean, across the board in performance at, in ELA, there was essentially a net decrease of about four percentage points from 2019 data on the MCAS. And the MCAS, they look at both math and reading, ELA, English language, 
Arts. Arts. So they look at those two scores. These were given for assessment purposes at the end of the year last year. The state is the one who instigates that, and they were done to really start to measure what learning loss has happened um, because of the pandemic. Correct. So thank you for that summary, Jill. In the 2021 English Language Arts MCAS results, essentially 31% of students tested met or exceeded expectations in grades three through eight in English Language Arts. That's a decrease by four percentage points from 2019, the last time the test was given. In math, 20% of our students met or exceeded expectations in grades three through eight, which was a decrease in 13 percentage points from 2019. So there's a lot of learning loss. There's definitely concerning you know, that our students have gone down yeah. in their performance. In comparison to other large urban districts, mm-hmm. we actually are doing a little better than mm-hmm. large urban districts. Mm-hmm. Now, what was ignored last night Mm. and in the conversation around these MCAS results was sort of the subgroup data, right? And and this is in, we'll we'll attach the report here, but our English language learners actually were probably the the ones that we should be most concerned about because they dropped the most in their one-year trend, actually Mm -hmm. more than any other student group. And their growth scores were actually quite low as well. And there was no discussion around the breakdown of the data. No members asked about subgroup data, really. And they sort of just talked about high-level tutoring programs and and guidance counselors and social workers that were having a hard time hiring in schools. Well, welcome to the club. Everyone across the country, there's a dearth of those professionals. And so there's going to have to be some other... We might, I hope we're, we're pursuing other solutions right. as well. Now, now, Jill, the, the one other thing I say about this MCAS data is there was also no discussion at all about what schools were bucking the trend, right? Or are there, are there schools that are doing uh, much better than uh, we're seeing in these results? And if so, what can we learn from them in BPS? Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be really helpful to have school by school data here and, and break it down and say, oh, wow, this school, the Winship, just got a blue ribbon, uh, became a blue ribbon school. What are they doing that is different than other schools? And how do we make sure that all schools are using those strategies? All right. How do we use those best practices across other similar schools? So, Ross, then we moved on to a presentation on setting the superintendent's goals for this year. Well, the superintendent began the report by saying this. I believe that there is, as this Uh, data shows a lot of work to do um, within the district. Um, As you all know, we have been in a pandemic. And when I stepped foot into Boston Public Schools, there was a threat of receivership and audit done on the school district. So we know that there are some longstanding uh, issues that we need to um, dig out of and uh, to become a high-performing school district. That has been quite challenging uh, in a pandemic. However, uh, we are very committed uh, to excellence and equity, and we are still moving the needle and have accomplished much, even though we uh, have been needing to uh, first prioritize the health and safety of our community. So Jill, these goals, and let me just do a a brief summary here of the superintendent goals. But actually, before I do that, Jill, let's just have a conversation about this. There was a a lot of time spent at last year on setting the superintendent's goals. I feel like we just finished talking about the superintendent's goals for last year. Right. And then in her performance evaluation, they're pretty much ignored. Right. um, Because they basically said, well, there's a pandemic. pandemic. Now there's goals being set. 
But which, by the way, she ends by saying that she needs to prioritize the health and safety of our students. Right. So the superintendent is saying, look, here's these goals, but I'm focused on the health and safety of our students. Right. By the way, not one of the goals, the four goals, has to do anything with health and safety of students. Right. Not and, and last year, we took care of the health and safety of our students by sending them all home. Correct. We slowly came in right at the end, introduced COVID-19 testing. We were feeding kids, not all of them. But I mean, it wasn't like this is new. It's kind of new. Right. So, Jill, if, if we're going to really assess the health and safety of our students, and that is a key priority, I would want to assess, are we giving our students water, access to water? Are there, is their air quality okay in their, in their classrooms? Do they have functional windows? Do our buses uh, not leaving our students on the side of the corner for hours upon hours? Are well, students getting healthy food? Yeah, mental um, are health. Are we doing coronavirus testing? Yeah. Um, or are we blaming somebody else for yeah. not doing coronavirus testing? So, but anyway, let's let's get past that. That is the superintendent's priority. She's basically saying, look, this is what I'm focused on. These goals, Jill, that were set forth last night are not goals. These are not goals that we would even accept from any educator in our district. Hmm. The goals are supposed to be smart goals, specific, measurable, attainable goals. None of the goals presented last night had any data or any actual numbers or goals. No targets. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, Jill, and, and dissect these. Let's just be clear. These are not goals. Uh, we are starting the year without the superintendent setting goals. The conversation last night was, we'll eventually set these, uh, but let's not hold our breaths on, on seeing that happen. Well, and I think to, to that point, there's a question then of what should be expected. You know, how does school committee know what to expect if there aren't goals? How does the parent population, the caregiver population, the student population, the teaching population know what to expect from their district if there are no goals set? And if the expectations are not there, then you can kind of just manage the system to extremely low or differing expectations meeting to meeting. Yeah, I, look, this has become like we've, we've lost our focus on kids and about what we want to ha have our kids achieve. But now we're kind of focusing on how not to hold our superintendent accountable. Yeah. Well, so the last report of the night was on exam schools, and it was, you know, a lot of people were waiting for this report. We heard from 24 people during public comment on issues, including special education and the Mission Hill School. But it was this comment that foreshadowed the school committee's discussion on the new exam school policy. Uh, uh, I live in West Roxbury. Parent of two kids, one in BLS, the other one is a sixth grader waiting to join the exam school. So I have a question. I know there will be a simulation uh, uh, a presentation afterwards. My daughter, we are living in West Roxbury in Zone A. My daughter is in a school that's not in a part of the schools that with 10 bonus points. So it's a general question. Uh, it's for my daughter, she's the top in the class, OP, OP, OA pluses in all her subjects and uh, uh, doing well in everything. Uh, but she unfortunately in a school that without the 10 bonus points. She still have a chance to go to exam school, any exam school. So it's uh, this is also the question I'm asking for a lot of other parents that in the same situation. So Jill, this parent is asking a direct question. Does my daughter have a chance, if she's a high performer, 
but does not go to a school that will receive the 10 points, does his daughter have a chance of getting in to an exam school? He asked this for his whole community because that's a question that's being asked over and over again. We expect that this question would have been answered uh, at the school committee meeting last night um, during the exam school simulation presentation. Right. But when we get to the presentation, we don't hear an answer to that question, which prompts these very specific questions, first from Hardin Coleman. But the one the one thing that has come up consistently in public comment several times was a perception in the community that they when people do their independent analysis, that there were schools in which there was no chance to get into the district. And I was surprised as I read through the report that there wasn't a rejoinder to that repeated and significant complaint. I mean, whether it was true or not true, that that issue was not addressed. And that seems to me, uh, um, um, I'm curious as to whether one took that criticism, complaint, speculation, and did our own analysis and found that there that every school in the district, there's a probability, it'll vary, that a kid could get it, would get an exam school, that there are no schools in which zero admissions um, would occur. Jill, this is a simple question. Does a child in any school have a chance of getting in to an exam school? Here's what the superintendent and her team had to say. I think that when we showed the data earlier, Monica certainly the expert more so than me in, um, in the data and the deep dive into it. But I think what we were able to show was that proportionately for students who are in a lower poverty school that they would not receive uh, receive um, additional points. However, you can see that they are receiving proportionately to their uh, population of school age students in each tier that they're they are they do have a chance at getting it. So what we determine is that it's your grades and eventually when the full policy is implemented in addition to your test score, that is really going to be the determining factor in whether you do or do not get a seat at an exam school. Dr. Coleman doesn't seem to feel that the superintendent has answered his question, so he asks it again. The explicit um, hypothesis or claim that other data analysis suggests that there are schools because of the way we've made these changes to be more equitable, in which no one has a chance to get in, I would have, I would have hoped uh, we had done that analysis. And we could say, no, there is no school in BPS in which you are a member, given our current system, in which no student in that school has a probability of getting into the exam schools. That was, that was the claim. And I think we should respond to that explicitly. The superintendent asks Monica Hogan to respond. Not so, yeah, Dr. Coleman, I'll, I'll jump in here. I think um, an important thing to remember with both this policy and the prior policy is that no school has ever been guaranteed or denied um, any invitations to an exam school. Um, one of the things that the task force did consider was um, a model similar to what happens in Texas for college admissions, um, where you consider the top percentage of um, schools 
that would be guaranteed seats at a particular school. Um, that is something that the task force um, ultimately did not want to pursue further. Um, I'd have to go back to some of the minutes um, to try and recollect some of the, the conversation that they had, um, but there was a lot of thinking around small schools in Boston. Um, if there's only you know, a single strand school, um, where there's only 20 or 25 students in a particular grade level, um, that could feel really limiting. Um, and so part of the move from, um, this I think was also some of the feedback we heard around the zip codes in the interim policy. And so part of the move from zip codes to tiers um, was to not um, remove a perception that we were penalizing any sort of small areas, right? Because some of our zip codes were smaller and had smaller um, numbers of school-aged children. And that felt like in those zip codes that um, students had limited access. So I think um, what, what we see in this data that was shared tonight was that there are students in the simulation attending a school that doesn't get points that do get an invitation. Um, and we saw that those percentages are roughly proportional to the percentages of students enrolled citywide in sixth grade. Um, I'm, I'm not gonna sit here and guarantee you one way or the other um, that any single student will or will not get in under this policy because of everything we've outlined around limitations, right? The grades have not been recorded yet. We, we don't have science and social studies grades to incorporate in a simulation. Students might not live in the same places. They might not attend the same schools. We just saw in the MCAS data tonight, vast, vast impacts on student learning due to COVID. Um, so I, I think my interpretation of the simulations and of the data is that there, there is a, a chance for students at any school. Um, to get in, but we cannot guarantee any single school, you will get 10 seats or you will get five seats. You know, Ross, one strategy when you are trying to avoid a question is to talk about other things like Texas college entry strategies or small schools and try to make the questioner forget what he has asked. But Dr. Coleman doesn't forget his question and he asks it again, but receives no further response. Well, Monica, but that wasn't the complaint. The complaint that I heard that there's a probability, a high probability, that no one from the school would get in. I don't know whether that's true. I don't know whether that's true or not. I'm just saying I would like to know whether that's true or not. And so Mr. DeArujo tries to ask the question in a different way. So just on, on, on that exchange, so I, I am having a little trouble following the response, but but if the response is that we cannot adequately model uh, the impact of, of our vote to attach 10 points to these schools, to, to individual schools, right? Not to individuals, but to individual schools. Um, and particularly in a year where there is no test, right? We're not giving a test for the 22, 23 year. Then, then if we can't model it, I believe that we should err on the side of rescinding uh, uh, the, the, the 10 points. If we can't understand it, we can't model it, um, then 
if it has the potential to have these impacts of a, a significantly unfair impact, right? Where um, just by virtue of what, uh, and we've I've heard directly from B, from BPS schools. Um, I think Ms. Mercer raised the issue of, of charter and Metco uh, Metco schools uh, uh, students that if if it's if we just can't model it, but we have this kind of thing that's just floating out there that wasn't part of uh, the original task force recommendation, really was an afterthought. Then, uh, and even if, it, even if it was part of it or whatever, uh, it, I think it's clear that, that that's potentially very unfair, then we should not have the result. We do have the tier system. Uh, we do have, you know, using the grades, expanding the grades to include the other academic subjects. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm even more concerned after that response. Mr. DeRuzzo is trying to get at a deeper, uh, deeper data, right? And into the simulation to understand if, if they've used data um, or if any of the data that they have will answer the question and they simply cannot answer, they will not answer uh, Mr. De Arujo or Dr. Coleman's uh, questions. The superintendent asked Monica Hogan to respond again. Monica, can you speak to the pool of the simulated pool and who is and is not included in that simulated yep. pool? I don't have that breakdown in front of me, um, but that's something we can follow up on. So the committee seems to be frustrated, and Mr. DiRuggio expresses very specifically the potential unfairness of the policy. I would like to see a simulation with 10 points and without 10 points, obviously working within 100% SCS tiers, and, and especially for this coming year with no, um, you know, with no exam. And then let's, let's see what happens there. Um, I am deeply concerned that we can't, we can't model out the most critical question that we have, which is, um, you know, if you, if you're essentially, you know, many kids who are right there, they don't choose their school, right? And, and BPS, they're, they're lotteried, uh, they're lotteried in. Uh, if you just happen to go to a school uh, that doesn't get the 10 points, do you really have zero chance of getting into any of these programs? So Jill, this is a, this is a really good question from the school committee members, right? And to right. ask all the school committee members. Okay, we asked for the data to show us that this policy was going to ensure that any students from every school would be able to at least gain access to an exam school potentially right right they wouldn't be completely shut out they th the school system has not presented they've had months right to present this data well and people have been asking this question for months and people have been doing their own models for to months. answer the question right for months and in the lack of any data, of course, people are going to try to do simulations to try to understand what is going to happen. Right, here. right. So, so Mr. DeRuzzo is saying, hey, should we should we hold hold this for a second? And actually, he's 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 saying, let's implement the policy, but let's take away the part that we don't know its impact, which is the ten points, right? Um, and when it moved from fifty percent to forty percent, he's saying, let's hold on that part of the policy at least for the first year when we're just using grades. Right. So then, out of what seemed like left field, Vice Chair O'Neill takes time to explain to us all how Monica is feeling about the simulations she has created. I've done a lot of work with data in my day job, quantitative and qualitative, and I've worked closely with research firms over the year. And I am very aware of the limitations of simulations and are sensitive to that. And particularly, have dealt with a lot of research directors in my career. And I know how you get very hesitant. You feel you're on a tight, tight wire um, rope and you get very nervous about making promises that the data isn't going to support. Uh, I, I get it. You, 
the phrase statistically relevant rings in the back of your head in the middle of the night and you get nervous about giving assurances that the data may not support. And so I'm sensitive to that. You are trying to make us aware of what the limitations are. So Jill, this was very confusing to me. Mr. O'Neill, almost it was, it was almost as if he was ignoring um, the whole previous conversation. Right. And he, he was saying, you know, this is complicated and hard. And by the way, he's the one who was asking for school by school yeah. uh, data right. in the previous meetings. Um, but now he's saying, you know, this is hard and I don't, I don't know that we should all be asking so many questions and people are doing simulations. Let's kind of ignore those. And he, he sort of just said, let's just move forward with the policy. He, he did. Of, he, well, he said, he said, I understand the questions, but he was definitely trying to push. Yeah. He's like, we can't along. know all the answers and it's really good. We have the data that was presented by Ms. Hogan. It, and he's completely ignoring the fact that Ms. Hogan was saying, I don't have, I don't the, have data. the data. Yeah. Um, but he's like, but despite that, let, let's just move forward. Right. Um, now, he continues by uh, offering two contradictory paths forward. Um, I am very sensitive to trying to adjust and, and change during this year based upon various models of simulations and what ifs without us getting to the end of this year, you have in the implementation plan, a June review where we have actual data of what happened this past year. And yet I am also sensitive to what Mr. DiRugio said, which is if you're a parent of a sixth grader this year, you don't wanna hear, well, we'll wait and look at it in June, right? So we have to be really comfortable with this simulation model and that it is providing a level playing field. Ross, what is he saying about the simulation? Mr. O'Neill seems to be contradicting himself here. I have no idea what Mr. O'Neill is saying, Jill. I really don't. He's basically saying, hey, let's just move the policy forward and um, see if it's unfair after the first year. Right? But, but in the case, but then, well, wait, but there are kids who are in sixth grade right now. So what do we do about that? Right. But then there's these sixth graders who, who may be impacted unfairly. Yeah. So we should be really comfortable with our policy, uh, even though we're not comfortable with the simulation clearly, because Dr. Coleman and Mr. DeRugio, at least, were asking, we're saying very clearly, we are not comfortable with the simulation. And then Mr. O'Neill's kind of saying, let's just move this forward. Can right. we get past this? Can we just ignore everything that we just talked about and get the policy implemented? Well, Ross, luckily there was a community member who was listening closely and provided public comment at the end of the meeting. She outlined exactly what should happen next in order to answer the question, will all students have an opportunity to get into the exam schools? So first I wanted to say that I was shocked that Ms. Roberts and Mr. O'Neill both noted that the percentage of invitations extended to students attending non-bonus point schools is roughly equivalent to the percentage of students enrolled in sixth grade citywide, and they cited that as evidence that the policy is fair, they are wrong. The relevant comparison is not between invited students and all sixth graders in Boston. It is between invited students and applicants who have a B or higher GPA. That is to say, the population of students who are actually able to attend the exam schools. According to your own simulations, fully one-third of qualified applicants attend schools that do not qualify for bonus points. Under a fair and reasonable policy, that means that one-third of invited students would attend such schools. However, again, according to your own simulations, 
only one fifth of invited students attend such schools. On that score, this policy is obviously not fair and Mr. O'Neill should take no comfort in that data. If any member of the school committee does not understand this distinction, please reach out to me and I will be happy to explain my point in detail. Secondly, what I've seen tonight actually does not assuage the concerns of many parents and those concerns expressed at last month's meeting that certain BPS schools that are below the 40% economically disadvantaged threshold will send almost no students who do not instead receive the 15 bonus points for living in BHA or for being homeless or in DCF custody to some or all of the three exam schools. This point was articulated by Mr. Durajo, but I was surprised to hear Mr. O'Neill indicate his comfort in the policy without any caveat in light of the fact that that highly relevant data was omitted. I think what the school committee and the public really need to see is a simple series of charts showing for each tier the number of students invited from each BPS elementary school and from the other statistically significant private parochial and charter historical sending schools. This data should then be further broken down by invitations to each of the three exam schools based on historical application preferences. So we should see specific projections for BLS, BLA, and the O'Brien from each tier and each sending school. Additionally, for each of these categories, it should also be revealed what number of invited students received 15 bonus points. I know that during the task force proceedings, BPS was able to provide simulations with these data points, and so I see no reason why they cannot do so now. Well, that was clear. Yes. You know, it, it is. It is. It feels very nice to have actually a very clear comment about what 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 should be done. I, I hope they just do that. Yeah, that would be great. But Jill, here's the real point. Uh, as provided earlier in the night by a father of two BPS students. This whole meeting has been about 6,000 high school students, and not a word has been spoken about the other 20,000 students who attend the dozens of other high schools in Boston, many of which are, are schools that are performing in the bottom 10% of the state. All these years I have been asking the same question. Why are we only talking about three schools? It was so nice to hear you say the same thing a few weeks ago, Madam Chair. There are over 26,000 students in grades 6 to 12 at BPS. The three schools that everyone is talking about are counting for 6,000 of them. That's 20,000 kids that go to schools that no one that has been complaining to you, giving testimony the last year and a half about exam schools, seems to want to send their kids to. All those unhappy, angry, disappointed parents aren't complaining about not being able to go to the infamous BLS, BLA, or Bryant. They're complaining because they feel that they don't have a better option. I'm going to read a quote by our superintendent, Dr. Caselis. The pandemic spurred a remarkable collective response to support our community and reminded us of the value of our relationships with our students, families, and each other. So I ask you, Madam Chair, committee members, Dr. Caselius, let's shift the conversation to where the real problem is. And when the community is knocking at your door with solutions, please open the door and listen to them. And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Here are some of the questions that we think are worth asking. Given the new policy, will all students in the city of Boston have a chance at attending an exam school? Will the school committee change the policy they adopted if they determine 
that it does not give all students a chance at attending an exam school. Will the school system create a plan for increasing the quality of the other high schools in Boston public schools? How do we measure the impact of the ESSER funding to help inform the next round of ESSER funding? Previously released plans from BPS said they would submit a preliminary plan for ESSER round three funds by October 4th. It's October 7th. What happened? And of course, there are ways to engage and get involved. The next mayor will need to focus on education in Boston. We are down to two candidates and we'll cast our votes in November. We will link to the education platforms of both mayoral candidates in our blog. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.